Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. It's amazing to see that conservation organizations generally succeed now because of their power in convincing the community or showcasing to the community the importance of that ecosystem. I think there are Nature for All members in, in dozens of countries around the globe, six continents. I don't think we have Antarctica yet, but we're getting close. Yeah, those leopard seals, they're a tough sell. They are. <laughs> yes, they are. But they're wonderful. I love leopard seals now. Yeah. The sense of awe and wonder that this area of the world evokes is unlike anything I'd ever experienced at the time. And still. Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers. This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... And they're showcased that if you give the animal that respect, if you, you know, give it its space, if you recognize that people will come to see it, it's a mindset shift that leads the whole community to come to love that. And that's something that you, I've seen, I think, on all seven continents now at this point, where the power of that story to say the world is brighter and richer for having this animal or having this place in it and we all benefit from its preservation is the thing Personal nature stories have the power to move us in unimaginable ways. For this special episode, as part of Nature for All's storytelling festival, Love Fest, three short nature stories are woven around a conversation with Jesse Hildebrand of Exploring by the Seat of Your Pants. Jesse joined Ian to discuss the connection between nature stories and conservation engaging people's hearts and minds, and why there are very real reasons for hope when it comes to the preservation of biodiversity. So is this your first winter in Newfoundland? It is. It's, uh, it's wonderful. It's, we get about three feet of snow every month, but it is literally <laughs> like living in a Hallmark movie. I went for a walk just before this, and so the, it's wet snow, so it's all stuck to the trees. The snow is about three feet high. It's, crystal clear, shining everywhere. The sun is broadened out, which is nice. Back in Ontario, I know that it used to come out in the winter, but now the sun never comes out for like four straight months. So to have yep. a, a perfect snowscape with sunny skies is about as nice as you can possibly get on this planet. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. I do have to rake my roof though. I got, I had to rake off four feet of snow off the roof the other day. That was a bit much. I've never heard yeah. that verb used for snow. No, removal. so it, it took me moving to Newfoundland to hear about the existence of roof rakes. And it's not like a rake. It's basically like a large pusher with a flat bit at the end that you use to get stuff right at the edge so you don't fall off with a shovel. Um, so I, I'm really I'm really buffed now. Like I, I've gotten so fit from pushing the heavy snow from 20 feet away with a pole. It's quite incredible. Yeah, extra bonus. Wow. The things you learn. See, it's early in the morning here in Eastern time zone and I've already learned a new verb. So there you go. That's the dream, really. That's why I came on the, the program today. That's right. 
So with exploring by the seat of your pants, and say that 10 times quickly, you do, what, 30 or 40 broadcasts a month, thereabouts? Something like that. Uh, February actually is our month dedicated to women in STEM. And so we typically go mm-hmm. 50, 60, something like that. We kick out all the dudes. It's really fun. Uh, and so our biggest months are about 55, 60 and average at least 40 a month. Uh, we did 26 in January and we started on the 13th. So it's a, uh, it's a busy time, two a day at least. And then some days we get five and six. Yeah. So where are you off to next? Uh, today, we continue our four-part series with Impact 5, so this incredible Ocean Marine Congress mm-hmm. is happening in Vancouver, and we brought on a really inspiring young person every day um, over the course of the week, so that's going to be fun. And about uh, 20 minutes ago, my colleague wrapped up with astronaut Nicole Stott talking about her experiences on the space station, so she's come on and joined us a few times now, and so it's a, it's a little bit of everything. It's it's always an adventure. We were in South Africa yesterday. We've been in Antarctica twice this year already. Um, it's it's a good time. And all without leaving Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. That's right. I can be I can be right here. <laughs> my house. Actually, one of the big questions we get regularly is like, so do you go to these places? I was like, I would be. I never got off the plane. Basically, I'd constantly live in airports if I actually had to go in person. But no, that's the magic of of this sort of thing. It's the magic of radio broadcasts, podcasts, virtual programs. Is that you can be anywhere and connect with people live directly from around the globe. You can have kids in 10 different countries and you can have a speaker in Australia and you can be in Newfoundland and it all works. And that's, that's like black magic. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Pinch myself daily. Ian. Absolutely. Well, probably you more than just about anybody I know in this circle, in this broad circle of outdoor and environmental education have a, I would say a front row seat to powerful and probably often moving nature stories. So you're really one of the ideal people to speak to the power of nature stories. And I thought we would start by just kind of unpacking that because we are in the midst of the love fest and we'll talk a bit more about that later. But what is it about nature stories that just has such an impact? I think stories in general, personal stories in general, whether it's nature, whether it's art, history, music really impact people. We, you can share a broad idea to a bunch of people and maybe some people that will resonate with them and it'll cause them to take action or change their path but it's that personal connection with one person maybe they went through the same struggle that you did maybe they went through the same experience that you did and they found that this was their conduit to change their behavior or change the way that they thought about the world and so with personal nature stories you get this opportunity to hear about how people have been impacted by you know, the natural world in so many different ways. And this is something that you feature on your program a lot, but whether it's people that find peace and solace in nature, whether it's a person that maybe was having troubles in their life and they found relaxation out in nature, maybe it's someone who loves wildlife and they got the chance to go out and and explore and and interact with animals in a way that they never thought possible. I mean, there's a, a, geez, quite literally probably a million different ways that people have been impacted by wildlife by nature by the outdoors and i think that if you're hearing someone talk about that and their story links to yours in some way it's much easier to make that connection and and cause people to to change and that's my take on it anyway um certainly i found when i was a boy you know steve Irwin, david attenborough were my heroes and it was because they went out and they explored these places so my youth was growing up hearing from people that went around the world and got the chance to see firsthand and showcase how amazing animals are and the fact that you can be make a living being passionate about sharing the wonder of wildlife with the public really impacted me i mean i remember knowing that i wanted to do this from 
about four or five years old. Wow. Uh, because of that experience. And so my whole career comes about because of that personal connection with the nature story that I saw on the screen that I've read in books. Um, and I, as you said, I've had the chance to hear so many more of those over the last years and see how those stories impact kids. And it's a really special, special opportunity. And it seems like many people have a specific moment that they can specify, like an inflection point where they're like, it was my life before this moment and my life after this moment. Have you noticed that in the various stories that you've heard in the broadcast that you do? All the time. One of the yeah. big questions that you get from kids is, you know, what put you on this path? Yeah. And there's no universal answer to this, but consistently, I would say 80% of the people we have on say, I was a kid, I went here, or I did this, or a parent or a friend introduced me to this idea, this concept, these animals, and that was it for me. That was the inflection point. I think of, uh, we have a conservationist we have regularly on named Poppy Borboroglu, the most inspiring man I've ever heard in my life. I did the first program with him and I literally donated $50 to his organization by the end of a 20 minute talk because he was that <laughs> inspiring. And he talks about his grandmother taking him to see a penguin colony in Argentina where he grew up and to see all these birds stretched out to the horizon with their chicks. And he's now the head of the Global Penguin Society, the leading conservationist for penguins in the world. When they want someone to talk at a keynote at the IUCN, they bring Poppy Borboroglu from this youthful childhood experience. And so whether it's scuba diving, whether it's penguins, whether it's seeing a tiger in the forest of India, I mean, we've had these stories on the program, but it, it tends to be a youthful experience and it tends to be something very salient where people saw something or did something. Uh, and I, I just find that you know, endlessly inspiring because for kids, wherever they're joining from, if you've got a kid in Saskatchewan and you hear someone talk about their ocean experience, maybe that kid has never seen an ocean, but they can go to a grassland or they can go yeah. to a zoo or they can go and find that same level of, of interest and change in whatever their local environment may be. And I think that's a really magical thing about the natural world is that no matter where you are, it's around you in some fashion. So, yeah. It is. And, you know, Saskatchewan, it maybe doesn't have the sea of saltwater, but it certainly has the sea of grasslands, as you mentioned. And I've had the pleasure of seeing the goose migration in the fall in central Saskatchewan and being able to literally say, I saw 100,000 geese, five different species, mostly snow geese, lots of Canada geese, some cackling geese, some Ross's geese mixed in, maybe a few white-fronted geese, and then throw, you know, a few hundred or maybe a few thousand sandhill cranes, a handful of whooping cranes, all in the same day, under sunny skies, Saskatchewan, particularly Saskatoon, famous for those sunny skies. And it's not a tropical, exotic location for those of us based in North America, but my goodness, the wow moments are just stunning. Yeah. I grew up in Toronto in the heart of the biggest city in Canada, one of the biggest cities in North America. And you can go to the east end of the city and see the largest cormorant colony in the world. Yeah. Right there on the islands. I, I remember I was a boy. I don't know what prompted me to do this other than the fact that I was a huge nature nerd. But I went into my backyard with a magnifying glass, a piece of paper, and a pencil. And I went spent two hours trying to figure out all the species that lived in my backyard. And I found 72 species, different kinds of creature, some kind, mostly insects and arachnids, of course. But that really changed me. I was this little kid and it was like, wow, look how much diversity is literally in my backyard and think about the broader world around you, not just in the city, but globally. And I, that, it, it, I, I love your Saskatchewan story, but this is something that can happen to you anywhere in the most unlikely of places that so many people would think. So, Yeah, keeping it local. 
Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a registered charity in Canada that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. By taking out a subscription, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. Alisa McCall is a staff scientist and director of conservation outreach at Polar Bears International. This is her story. One of my favorite nature memories is from studying polar bears on the Arctic sea ice. It was about 10 years ago and we were flying a helicopter over the Hudson Bay sea ice looking for polar bear families. We had found a mom with cubs and we're working on the family measuring how big they are and how healthy they are. And we stopped because on the horizon there was another family walking by, another mom with cubs. And it was so amazing to be in this harsh habitat, freezing cold, windy, the ocean beneath our feet, everything shifting. And these little cubs with their moms were navigating this just moving landscape beneath us. It was absolutely gorgeous. And ever since then, I've just been in love with polar bears and their Arctic sea ice home. Well, let's connect the dots between storytelling and conservation. I mean, you're connected with Nature for All. They're deeply affiliated with the IUCN, the International Union for Conservation of Nature. And that's obviously, I think, an underlying goal for a lot of us in this work is to foster and maybe open up pathways for that passion that could perhaps lead to action. What have you observed in the stories that you've heard in the broadcast that you do of hearing these stories and that translating into action for conservation? Oh, I, I mean, <laughs> where to start? It's yeah. interesting. I have this luxury in my role of getting to hear from some of the leading conservationists and, and storytellers and environmentalists in the globe every single day. And I, I pinch myself daily to have the luck to have that role. But the stories that people share, not only, I mean, it, it's people's personal stories, their backdrops, like the you know, Poppy Barbaroglu and the penguins that led them to the career that they have. But it's amazing to see that conservation organizations generally succeed now because of their power in convincing the community or showcasing to the community the importance of that ecosystem or of that wildlife. Pretty much universally, whether it's crocodiles in the Philippines, sharks off Madagascar, turtles in, in Central America, organizations that succeed start by talking to people to say, what do you know about this? How do you feel about this? Did you know this? Maybe the turtles are under threat. Maybe the sharks are under threat. Here's how. Maybe the people that they're talking to are the people who are actually causing those animals to be under threat. And they showcase how different the situation could be with small little actions. And you end up with the whole community on your side. A lot of the most uh, fantastic conservation groups do tons of programs with kids to get them to love those animals that might have even been a threat before. Things that could literally eat you. I mean, we've had <laughs> programs with leopard and tiger conservationists where that's an actual threat to be attacked by these animals. And so you grow up thinking, oh, that's the thing that we want to get rid of. It's dangerous. We want to kill it. And they're showcased that if you give the animal that respect, if you, you know, give it its space, if you recognize that people will come to see it, it's 
a mindset shift that leads the whole community to come to love that. And that's something that you, I've seen, I think on all seven continents now at this point, where the power of that story to say the world is brighter and richer for having this animal or having this place in it, and we all benefit from its preservation, is the thing that is leading these places to be saved around the globe. It's, yeah, it's, it's a really special thing to witness and to be a part of. Do you find that making the explicit link between the existence of this species, say a Bengal tiger, and the direct benefits to humans is useful, like making it just so clear and explicit? Or is it more sort of focusing on just the wonder of, wow, let's see this animal and experience this animal? Because I think of the Algonquin Park example, and I had the great pleasure of working up there for four seasons, and they're famous for their public wolf howls that would get anywhere between 500 and 2,000, 2,500 people all lined up along the highway, which they are able to shut down, or I don't know if they're able to do that anymore, but they did for many decades. And that one program significantly helped shape the narrative about wolves from something that was routinely shot to something that is just connected with all of these intangible concepts of, of wonder and fierceness, but sort of an impressive fierceness that you're in awe of and you revere. And it's an example that I love because I worked up there, but it's also kind of right in our backyard. It's in Ontario. We both grew up in Ontario. And there are so many other examples of that all around the world. I mean, I think of the late Rob Stewart and Sharkwater and how that one film, and it, you know, it's still, I never met the man. I really wish I had. And I, I still somehow feel a bit emotional kind of talking about his legacy because it's so tragic but the impact that he made in shark conservation simply by showing the wonder of sharks, not even explicitly saying this is how sharks benefit humans, just here are sharks, is really stunning. So do you find that making that explicit link to humans is important, or is it just tell the stories of the animals? I think that for 99% of people, telling the stories of the animals is the trick, because we see that you, you, you could find a million stats in this, but I mean, People go to parks in droves every day, whether they're in cities, the country, people flock to natural areas. People travel around the world to go and see wildlife in its natural habitat. And most people can speak to a profound experience interacting with nature. And that doesn't need to be an elephant or a Bengal tiger. That could be a squirrel or a goose or something that's literally like in their front or backyard. People love wildlife. Uh, E.O. Wilson, one of the leading conservationists mm -hmm. of all time, called this biophilia, the idea yes. that we have this innate connection to nature. What I find interesting about this is that most people recognize this, but when you're trying to shape policy, when you're trying to convince people that actually have the power to make those changes, that argument doesn't necessarily fly, which is unfortunate. I think that the wonder of nature is the most powerful thing ever, and, and it really has shaped public perception in a huge way. But if you do link it to people and you add that on, that can be a powerful supplement to that. So I hate to have a situation where it was only, let's save the tiger because this is how it'll benefit people, A, B, C, reasons economically. I hate for that to be the only thing, but that can be a nice help to look at the wonder of the tiger, look at the majesty of this forest, let's protect them for their own sake. Yeah, that's, I, I, that's how I feel about it. And by the way, the wolf howl is a great example. I had the chance to participate in those. My thought was always, 
Uh, how do 2,500 people sneak up on a wolf? But the wolf is gone, long gone. But it's a really magical experience and Algonquin Park's a really, really special place. So yeah, that's that's my, my feeling on it. Hmm. Yeah, you know, one of the great, I think, privileges of that experience is seeing 2,500 people completely silent and wanting to be silent and kind of self-policing. Like if somebody's car alarm goes off, it's like, shh, quiet, stop. (laughs) People really want to hear the distant howl of ideally a pack of wolves. Yeah. Every experience I've had the chance to have in Canada and abroad that is centered around having that connection with an animal has been really profound. It's really quite I've been very lucky to go to quite a few places and have those sorts of experiences elsewhere around the globe. But again, the wolf howl as a kid, I remember that I was like 10 years old. My dad took me to Algonquin Park and getting to join the people to do that was amazing. We were in Pinery Provincial Park on the the west side of of Ontario on Lake Huron. And I remember so distinctly as a boy, there's a park ranger. He's sitting in this parking lot and a bunch of us came over to be, what are you doing? He said, a turtle's laid its eggs. And so we got to watch the turtle lay its eggs in the parking lot. And we said, well, what's going to happen next? And he said, well, we're going to dig them up. We're going to put them somewhere safe and we're going to monitor them, make sure they aren't eaten. But I mean, that sticks with me so much, way more than other memories when I was 10 years old, because there was an animal involved. And so I, I'm I'm glad you've highlighted this. And I think it, it resonates with your entire audience, this idea of just feeling just captivated by the natural world. So it, it's such an important element of what we do. It is. Hey, it's Ian. I'm just letting you know that a subscription to Green Teacher also includes access to our massive and fast-growing archive of 500-plus ready-to-use activities, lesson plans, and articles. The recording of each new webinar goes into the archive, too, and there are 125 of those and counting. To save you time, everything is organized by topic and age group. Learn more by visiting greenteacher.com slash subscribe. We also have special rates available for bulk orders from your school, board, district, faculty of ed, or organization. As always, all proceeds go back into the nonprofit. Jai Sharma is a National Geographic certified nature and wildlife educator and member of IUCN and CEC. This is his story. Nature education is more than education, it is learning. And as we say, wild is the life here. So the wildlife is the best part of nature in the natural habitat. You can see streams around which are the lifelines, the veins and the arteries of forest, which keeps the forest green, recharging water and all animals keep moving around it or near it. And we are waiting for a beautiful male tiger, which we heard is nearby. And we just saw a bear crossing, deer behind us, so nothing more than, nothing more to expect than being around or being surrounded by wildlife. And we have every corner of the forest which is utilized by these animals, either for food, for habitat, for escaping or for hiding, or for even catching by these tigers, the carnivores. So this is what I interpret, this is what I teach the youngsters to develop the passion, the interest about connecting the links or the dots in nature, the importance of everything, whether it's the sand, whether it's these pug marks, 
As you can see, we can see about six different animal pugmas there. We have the hyena, we have the wild dogs, we have the tiger, we have the leopard and deer pugmarks. So this is how we need to read to understand. It's not physically we sign, see everything every time, but to feel the movement, to feel the calls, to analyze the pugmarks, how, what has gone, when, is the beautiful learning in nature as I call it. We got to be good disciples interpret that's that passion develops into a regular hobby and that develops into uh, understanding and empathy that gives you that direction of learning and understanding about nature and that's what i'm fortunate i've been doing it just for 30 plus years thank you very much well let's talk about the storytelling festival we are in it so today just for reference we're recording on february 8th and this episode will drop shortly thereafter 2023 and between February 7th and 21st is the Storytelling Festival Love Fest. So I will give you the floor to tell us more about that and how people can get involved. Absolutely. So Nature for All is the organization behind Love Fest or the, the network behind the Love Fest. Mm -hmm. Nature for All is this agglomeration of most of the education and conservation groups in the world. We're talking IUCN, Parks Canada, OceanWise, us at Exploring by the Seat of Your Pants and the work that I do. So you have all these groups that are coming together to partner on a, a festival of events, of stories, of excitement around nature in any way you can imagine. Uh, and that's a really special thing. Nature for All as a network in general has focused on this over its, uh, its existence, but the Love Fest is meant to be this, this ultimate highlight that from truly around the world, I think there are Nature for All members in, in dozens of countries around the globe, six continents. I don't think we have Antarctica yet, but we're getting close. Yeah, those leopard seals, they're a tough sell. They are, <laughs> yes, they are, but they're wonderful. I love leopard seals now. Yeah. But yeah, we, we've got people that are sharing movies that they've made about the coral reefs off Mauritius. We've got groups uh, like us that are doing art contests where kids are submitting images of what they want the world to look like by 2030 if we succeed in this 30 by 30 campaign to save 30% of the world's wildlife. Yeah. We've got live true personal storytelling shows with Story Collider in Vancouver that are happening. Impact 5 right now um, in Vancouver as well. Vancouver's a, a happening place. Yeah. Uh, so a, a lot of great stories from all these different groups to highlight the work that they do and also showcase that there are so many different ways of getting involved and getting excited about nature. The way to get involved uh, is to share your story. We want people to go to the website, to head to social media, use Nature Love Story, use hashtag Love Story, use hashtag Nature for All, and highlight some of those personal experiences that we've been talking about today of where nature has impacted you in a, in a meaningful and positive way. Maybe it was a park ranger with a turtle when you were growing up. Maybe it was a wolf howl. Maybe it was getting to walk in India with Bengal tigers, and we are going to feature a story about that during the love fest but uh it's natureforall.global slash love hyphen fest we'll make sure everyone has those resources at the end too uh, but it's a a chance to share your story and to see so many others from around the world so i hope everyone takes the opportunity to, to join in and have some fun with us yeah you know you mentioned the 30 by 30 and i'm a real sucker for future casting and envisioning a future where we got it right and we actually just put an article out about this is more related to the energy transition and decarbonization but of course relevant in many different ways biodiversity species protection and i just love that idea of if we make sensible decisions compassionate decisions and we are able to reach a lot of these goals that have been 
especially recently laid out at COP15, COP26, COP27. What does that world look like? And I think, again, that's where the storytelling comes in. How can we vividly describe the year 2030 as you're doing with this art contest and what that looks like, feels like, sounds like, smells like, tastes? Yeah, why not? What, what does it taste like? Just engaging all of the senses. Because if we don't know what we're aiming toward, it is kind of hard to set up a roadmap. And it also engages the imagination and all of these intangible concepts that we talk so much about in the field of nature interpretation. So really a big kudos for putting that together. I really, really think that's just so important. Well, thank you so, so much. And I, I think, you know, for me, science fiction does a really good job of this too in projecting to the future. What oh, we'd yeah. like to see. There's a, a book I read last year, uh, The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. That was just such a impactful, wonderful read about thinking about what the future might be. It starts off basically like in the present day, a catastrophe happens related to climate and it's how things shift from there. But even with the art contest, so I mean, I'll say we've done a couple art contests in the past and usually the submissions come in the final day. I get inundated <laughs> in this final, final day. And through a partner made possible through Nature for All and the Love Fest, we had this art contest sent out to the new Ukrainian school. So we're having Ukrainian kids share these stories every single morning i come in and there's like 10 more emails with submissions from across ukraine from kids one of the lines yet today i imagine the future of my country with a peaceful sky above my head with a clean ecology and respect for people and animals if that doesn't stir your heart i don't know what does we've got a, another kid talking about he literally has the drawing split between if we continue on our current path and what the world can be uh, now it's polluted with factories now and we need to work towards a place where we can breathe fresh air and that the future can be completely different if you put in the effort. I mean, th these are grade six kids in the middle of a war zone and they're thinking about a positive future, not just piecewise, but through ecology. And this is something that's so, I don't know, it, it, it it's profound, it's wonderful, it's magical to read every day. And, and I'm so privileged to have the chance to create this thing that people are taking up the mantle of and, and as you said future casting in such a positive way it's just it's magical it's easy to get bogged down by the negative side of the what if and i'm starting to see a bit more momentum about the positive side of it because it really galvanizes people and i mean these examples you've just given i mean you said it i couldn't put it in better words it stirs the heart my goodness yeah the positivity has started to come back around I know when I grew up, there was a lot of positivity. And then there was this, you know, 15 year period where most of the stories were pretty doom and gloom. And I mean, you, you can, you can tell pretty doom and gloom stories about the environment. We have done a lot of things that have negatively impacted ecosystems around this planet. If you follow regular news, frankly, talking about the death of reefs, of forests, of pollution in the atmosphere, rising CO2 levels, that is, that's, dire it's difficult to process that much information and it can lead to a lot of apathy i think once you mm. you know it feels like the sky is falling every day but it's in the last few years and i will hugely credit greta thunberg for this yeah. um that youth especially have started saying look this is the future that we can build this is what we want to do here are the facts here's the science let's do it and get a grip if you're not that's amazing. I think everyone thought it was going to be my generation that was going to be the rah, rah, lead the charge. And it's not. It's 16-year-olds and under. They yeah. know this backwards and forwards. Like, they know so much more than any of the rest of us. And they have this vision. 
And that's so wonderful to see. I think that that has coincided with this rise of the rewilding movement, which is really interesting and starting to take off in places in a variety of forms. The idea that we can bring back nature and that you can show statistically that that really does work. I mean, you can bring back ecosystems and have animals repopulate those areas really quickly. It's quite amazing to see that in action and to see that happen around the globe is a really positive sign. If we leave space for nature, it will return and, and kids know and, and live and breathe that. So it's exciting. It's an exciting time. And it's a great time to be alive. <laughs> it, it really is. And despite the doom and gloom being just part of the tapestry of reality, the complex tapestry that it is, another part of that tapestry is a lot of reason for realistic hope. And you're right. It is an exciting time to be alive. I We did a program series not long ago called Hope for Conservation. So we had eight leading conservationists around the globe come on and talk about the tangible, concrete things that they're doing to bring back the wild, to bring species back from the brink. And I mean, to hear those stories is to be filled with hope. And this is the whole theme of our, our talk today about these personal nature stories. We have a, had a coral reef scientist who goes to these dead and dying reefs where they're white, they're bleached, and they play the sounds, literally just the recordings of what a healthy reef sounds like over this dead reef. And the fish come by and they swim by this dying reef and they hear the sounds of the healthy reef over it. And they go, oh, well, I mean, it looks kind of bad, but I can probably move in. But clearly there's some fish around because I hear them. So this guy with this obscure, interesting idea <laughs> has made it where twice as many fish come back to repopulate the reef where they play the sound of the healthy reef over the dead one. That's amazing. Like that just, I mean, my jaw hit the floor when I heard that. We've got people who are bringing back bison that are airlifting bison from Elk Island National Park in Alberta to Yellowstone, to Alaska, to Banff, to repopulate these herds of this iconic North American species and that are having great success with that. I mean, those things are incredible and maybe some of them won't work. Maybe some of them will take longer than we think. But as long as there are dedicated, passionate people working on this, and that can inspire others to do the same. We're good. We've got, we've got hope. We will lose some things. There will be some bad stories in the years to come, but I think the overwhelming shift now, the tide is for positivity for a, a biodiverse and wonderful future. Yeah. Hi there. You might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now. Speaking of podcasts, Green Teacher is involved in another one. It's called Earthy Chats, and you know what? How about I let my co-host, Jade Harvey Barrel, tell you the rest? Take it away, Jade. Thanks, Ian. Hello, all. Indeed, we'd love for you to join us for Earthy Chats, our new podcast where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education. Like busy bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. All of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. That's Canada's non-profit outdoor resource store. You can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. So whether you're a teacher, educator, parent, or just a general nature geek, there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into. Did I cover everything there, Ian? Definitely. Thanks, Jade. So yeah, Earthy Chats. Check it out on your favorite podcast app. 
Jill Heiners is a cave diver and explorer in residence at the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. This is her story. One of my favorite wildlife encounters of all time happened off the coast of Newfoundland. It was early July and the capelin were rolling. That means there's so many capelin fish that literally the waves roll them up on the beach. And that's a time when you get a chance to see humpback whales. And I was not disappointed. We had about a hundred humpback whales just feasting on the capelin. We'd actually gone to that area to swim and dive around some icebergs that had drifted down from the north. But here in this moment, there were icebergs, there were humpback whales and capelin as far as the eye could see. I've never had such a close and long encounter with so many whales, and it's a memory I will never forget. Well, before we sign off, I know you've already shared a couple stories about Pinery Provincial Park, Algonquin Provincial Park, but do you have another one for us? I'm sure you have many. We all have many stories, but a really profound story in your life related to nature, wildlife, animals, plants, could be anything. Maybe it's protists. Maybe it was something under a microscope. I don't know. <laughs> wow, I haven't heard protists in a long time. Thank you for that. You know, I was I was talking with my wife about this earlier today. And again, I've been very lucky to have many. My first trip after university, I went to Tanzania to see the game parks because it's something that I'd always wanted to do. And to see an elephant or a lion in the wild was just a, mm. a moving magical experience. So it's unlike anything else in the world. But where I'm living now is my favorite story. And so in 2014... I don't know if our, our audience remembers, for any of the audience that was in Canada, these Newfoundland and Labrador tourism ads came out that were just fantastic and showcased the landscape in such a magical way. And I must confess, as a Canadian, I, I, it never dawned on me to go visit Newfoundland. But these ads were really, really effective. And so my mother and I went at the time, and we went and explored a place called Gross Moor National Park, which I have been to every province and the territories now, uh, is the most magical place I've ever been in Canada. It is just an astonishing landscape with amazing people. Uh, Newfoundlanders are the friendliest people in the world, but just the, the sense of awe and wonder that this area of the world evokes is unlike anything I'd ever experienced at the time and, and still. And so that was 2014. I managed to convince some other family and friends. I convinced my now wife to go with her family to Newfoundland. And we, we've been to Newfoundland on separate trips and I was a Toronto boy, born and raised. I thought I'd live in Toronto my whole life. I thought if I wasn't going to be in Toronto, I'd be in New York or LA or London or a big city mm -hmm. like that. I am a city born and bred. And this experience was so amazing in 2014 that when a job opened up for my wife in Western Newfoundland, an hour away from Grossmore National Park, we jumped at the chance. I am the happiest I've ever been in my entire life. In my six months, I've lived in Newfoundland because of the people, the culture, the area all because of this nature experience I had on a family vacation eight years ago. So it changed my life in such a profound way. And I think that that's the magic of nature. Whether you go to a place like Tanzania or you go down the road or you see the geese in Saskatchewan, those sorts of experiences can change how you perceive the world, how you perceive yourself and lead to some really, really big changes in your life. So for me, the, the choice to move is totally on the basis of an incredible landscape and place on this planet uh is is definitely my my biggest personal nature story oh that's a fantastic anecdote it's, it feels like anecdote almost doesn't do justice to the story i mean it literally 
shifted you geographically, changed your behavior, your lifestyle, where you want to sort of put down roots. So yeah, that's a tough one to beat. Well, thank you for <laughs> thank sharing you. that. <laughs> My pleasure, Ian. Huh. Well, we could probably riff for hours and hours here on more nature stories. And really, that is the whole point of, of this two-week stretch. And of course, it, it goes beyond the two weeks. This two weeks is just to highlight it. But we invite all folks to share their nature stories, whether it's through Nature for All on the website or on social media, and just spread the love. Thank you so much for having me, Ian. I, I hope our, the audience takes a chance to do just that. And even if it's just thinking at home uh, about your own experiences, it's just a a really nice opportunity to, to mull over the impact of the natural world. So thank you so, so, so much. Well, great to have you on amid your busy international schedule from your living room. <laughs> much appreciated. We can all single out one, probably several moments where nature moved us. During this year's Storytelling Festival Love Fest, we invite you to share your stories of meaningful experiences in nature and spread the love about our miraculous home planet. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargas Nessi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terrien. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. How many hours has it been since you last saw a moose? Uh, yeah, that's funny. Actually, we've uh, a long time. We don't have them in town here, or we we do on the outskirts of town, but you'd have to go to the outskirts of town to have them. We saw a moose when we were in Grosmorn itself. The last time we were there, we saw one swimming across the bay, Ooh, nice. about half a kilometer out. I was like, "Is that a duck?" And I was like, "No, it doesn't look like a duck from here." And it was the moose head. And then the yeah. moose came up on shore, and we got some great pictures of it, and uh, just beautiful. But yeah, they're um.